everyone. Welcome back to Femdementalists, our quarantine series, which is now just like post-apocalyptic world series because of everything that's been going on. Crisis series. Crisis series. series. For real. Uh, I'm Faiza. I'm Mehek. And this is our podcast about stuff going on in the South Asian community. And this week we are joined by Sayeda Abbas, uh, who's a housing attorney in New York City. And originally I had reached out to Sayeda because I wanted to talk about how her work um, working with low-income communities of color around the city has been impacted by COVID and then all of the Black Lives Matter protests started. Um, But it's actually a nice dovetail into the work that she does. And she's also attended protests and has been involved in this work for a long time. So thought it'd be great to just like continue this conversation and talk about what's going on in the world now. And just like your perspective on that, but I'll let Sayeda introduce yourself. Your perspective on everything, Sayeda. That's what we want to know today. Hi, hi everyone. Thank you for having me, Mehek and Faiza. Um, So you want me, I guess I'll start off talking about my work a little bit. Um, I'm a social justice lawyer. I do poverty law, which is also known as public interest law. I work in New York City um, and I represent low-income communities, um, low-income New Yorkers specifically. My focus is on anti-displacement, anti-gentrification housing work um, in upper Manhattan. So it's litigation, eviction prevention, and also bringing affirmative lawsuits against the slumlords of New York City. And I have a specific focus on racial justice work because you can't talk about housing justice without talking about racial justice. So yeah, that's what I do. Awesome. Thank you for that intro. I think, I mean, the so like I mentioned, one of the reasons why I reached out to you is because I think your work is really important and really interesting, especially with COVID's in, COVID coronavirus disproportionately impacting the um, black and brown communities, especially low-income communities. And then um, we were supposed to record like a couple weeks ago, and then this uh, basically all kicked off. And so I wanted to talk to you first about um, just what, your work around low-income communities, what's the, what's like the biggest misconception you've encountered with friends and family? I used to work for a nonprofit um, where I connected low-income individuals or people who were unemployed with public benefits. And there was like a lot of just like bullshit from my family and friends about their, uh, their idea of what like people who are impoverished or seeking access to public benefits, what their intentions are. So I wanted to hear from you on like what What's that, what, what that's been like for you? Yeah, totally. So, um, misconceptions, I would say, I would start off by saying that people don't really understand fully like what we do, right? Like it's not lawyering in the traditional sense. Um, you know, so much of what I do is in conflict with like how you're programmed in law school, you know, like I, I went to law school to do this work and I got there and I quickly realized that law school is trash and I didn't really learn anything. And, you know, I, I started working in law school and I worked every, I learned everything through work. And, you know, when you, I guess when you're trained as a lawyer, it's sort of like traditionally you're trained to like be a fixer or like a, like, you know, like swoop in, put on your cape and like help people with like whatever issue they're have they're having. And like, it's like you're trained to be part of a a system that relies on a power dynamic, right? So like when people think of of lawyers, you're like, okay, yeah, like you're you're a lawyer, this is what you do. And, And you're kind of, you don't think about like how we're sort of part of a system that's designed to yield certain outcomes, right? It's designed to, like in the very letter of of the law, designed to like yield certain outcomes. So like people think of, of, of lawyers and and then I'll, I tell them what, what, what I do and they don't really like fully understand. Um, I remember like when my mom first got it, she's like, oh, I, she was like, I feel like you're, you're like half of your work is like being a social worker. And I'm like, yeah, it is. like we're, there's a lot of social work and there's a lot of like organizing and like movement lawyering, right? Because like you can't really like change doesn't happen overnight and we have to be part of movements. And so like 
for me, it was like a perspective shift. And like, that's, I think the biggest misconception is like, people don't understand like what kind of, of lawyer, right? And so, and then what you mentioned, like misconceptions about my clients, right? And that's what like really, really peeves me and just misconceptions about poverty. And I can tell you, like, I'm coming up on a decade of this work. And to this day, like, I have yet to meet someone that is not hustling, right? Like, there is, there's this, there's, it's it's sort of like rooted in like anti-blackness, right? It's kind of like the sentiment that like poor people are poor because they're like feeding off the system or whatever that that saying is. Or like or they're gaming like, the system. They the don't want to work. So yeah. they're Yeah. Yeah, they're gonna game the system and get free money or right. whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I can tell you to this day, like there's not a single person that's like not recently unemployed or just like in between jobs or like have like fluctuating income or a single mother that has multiple mouths to feed. It's just like there isn't enough money because of all these systemic issues, right? Um, so that's like the biggest misconception about my clients. But then I think there's a lot of misconceptions about the work itself. Um, and yeah. Yeah. I, so what I, it was, a, I was in AmeriCorps and I was working at a, a national nonprofit in Harlem and I was, it, it was, I worked for a separate nonprofit, but we were co-located with the Department of Labor. So that was a service we were providing through the Department of Labor. And I was basically just connecting people who either low income or had been recently unemployed. And not one of them came to me with like a, like, you know, mischievous grin, like twirling their mustache, like, how can I get on food stamps or get some kind of public assistance? Everybody was like, I am at the end of my rope. This is my last resort. I have tried everything. And the system is set up such that people who are on welfare, this is the only way they can get by. So if you are a part, it, it, I, I met a couple of students who were like, I can't, if I, I'm in school part-time because if I go to school full-time, the system considers me opting out of employment. So if I go full-time and finish my four-year degree on time, I won't be able to make ends meet because I can't get a job. But if I'm part-time and get a job, then I won't be eligible for public assistance, but I'm also not going to be able to feed myself. So it's like this balance of like taking as, just as many courses as I possibly can to be part-time and apply for public benefits and take a job, but not work too many hours because then if I work too many hours, yeah. And stay afloat. Or if you have somebody who works full time and makes just below the poverty wages, they can make ends meet with public assistance. But the minute they take a promotion that puts them above that, they'll lose their public assistance and then essentially make less than they were when they were on public assistance. So like, it's just, it's, it's designed to keep people in a cycle of poverty. Yeah. It's it's yeah, it's absolutely designed to keep people dependent. And when realizing that just made me so angry about even the just like the anti black sentiment you you see just throughout like the welfare queen, Ronald Reagan's whole like war against poverty bullshit. And then anti black sentiment within the South Asian community, right? Because we buy into this model minority myth. When we came in with a leg up, because the government, the U.S. government wanted people who had education or were willing to pay for your education if you came in the 70s and 80s. So it's just like having done this work, it's so frustrating to see now like the George George Floyd's murder is a catalyst, right? This has been going on for decades. The work of black activists is going on for decades. But this was just like that moment where everybody's just like and now everybody's just fed up and now we're seeing all of this stuff and i call it stuff David, not lightly just but say, just like i just want to say we're nine minutes in and you've dropped so many gems already so this is about to be a crazy episode i love yeah. that you talked about how little law school prepares you to actually be yeah. an attorney um I did civil rights litigation for a year after law school. And I had also gone to law school to make a shift from like financial services into work that actually mattered and made a difference. And here I am back on wall street. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, but that one year completely opened my eyes. Like you put a very positive spin on it. I think I had a very negative experience to how much, 
emotional manipulation is involved in lawyering. And again, I think you take it the positive way. And like you talk about the activism that's required and the organizing that's required, but the litigation that I was doing, it was literally like, who's going to one up opposing counsel? Who's going to like out douche opposing counsel? And that's what kind of really put me off from um, litigating. But for sure, I think law school does not at all prepare you for that. Um, I mean, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I no, mean, I, I was going to go in an opposite direction. I was going to say you're right. I mean, it is, it's, it's very negative. I mean, I hate it. Like I'm a litigator and that's what I do. It's bleak. It's adversarial. It's, you know, it's a burnout practice. I hate it really. But like, you know, it's like kind of like, I know that I'm very little has to do with the law, right? Very little has to do with the letter of the law. Totally. And like, you know, if I wasn't doing this work, I would not be a litigator because like, I know that it's, it's awful. I myself am, I'm I'm a part of a system that's, that's broken, but like, I'd rather be in it to like, to do anything right than to not. And, and yes, it's, it's very bleak. It's negative, but, um, you know, struggle continues. I feel like I know more lawyers than I do people in the medical community, and that's saying something, being brown. But every single lawyer I know hates their job except one who worked in employment law for the city. So she was um, fighting for the rights of, of people who hadn't been paid by these government contractors. And the minute she went private, she hated her job. And it, I think it has a lot to do with like what, like you said, say that you're, I'm in this now, I might as well make the most of it and work for um, communities and do the work that makes me feel at least a little bit good about making some kind of change. I wouldn't say like, I mean, I don't, I wasn't saying I hate my job. I think, <laughs> um, I mean, I was just talking about like the systemic issues. Like it is, yeah. it is awful, right? Like courts are designed, like I said, to yield certain outcomes. Like when the constitutional convention happened and laws were written down, like they gave all the power to white men and that has trickled down into like all our laws and all our law enforcement and all of our courts. And so like going up against that, um, is awful. And I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's really awful, but I mean, I do love my job and like, I, I mean, I can't see myself doing anything else. So yeah, it's a love hate. And I think you have to have that kind of passion to be able to do the work that you do. Right. Otherwise the burnout is really real and you're just not going to be able to continue. Um, but to pivot to what you guys were talking about before with the systemic racism that's built into the system. I mean, these are like buzzwords, right. That we've heard, that we hear every time that there's this type of event, right? Any type of police brutality, systemic racism is one of the first buzzwords that kind of takes over social media. But one of the things that I've really been focusing on in light of the George Floyd murder and trying to educate myself and realizing how little I know about how deep the systemic racism goes, it's not just the policies of like in mass incarceration. It's not just the war on drugs. It's not just these prejudices, prejudice I, um, and biases that have like been beat into us as a society, but it goes so like, it's literally every aspect of American life is yeah. designed to exploit and oppress black people. Right. You think about, redlining, you think about property values, you think about funding for public schools, like this starts day one. This isn't, oh, this person just doesn't get hired because they look black or they have a black sounding name. It's because they went to a shitty school that didn't get funding, that had no good teachers, didn't have extended curriculum, AP courses, extracurriculars. Therefore, they did not get accepted to colleges. Therefore, You know what I mean? And if they even beat all those odds and did make it to college and did make it to interviews at a big company, they wouldn't succeed because like by this point, the deck is so stacked against them. And I think when we talk about systemic racism, like we fail or I failed to understand the full picture and the full reality, the all-encompassing reality. Yeah. 
I think one of the things that I, I saw this quote a few years ago from um, the guy who interviewed the the woman who had accused Emmett Till of um, kind of like making a pass at her and have, have led to his, his murder. And he had said that we're a nation of recovering white nationalists. Uh, and I think that's very true. And then the something that I just recently saw was that slavery wasn't abolished. It was reformed. And it was reformed through these institutionalized practices like redlining, like Jim Crow, um, like h- how we distribute uh, or, or gerrymandering. All of that is is what keeps this systemic racism alive and thriving. And we're just seeing the results of hundreds of years of that. And I think that's what people are reckoning with now is just, it's not just a funny sounding, oh, people are prejudiced because they see somebody with a, a funny name or um, uh, we can we just, you know, it, they've had, you know, slavery was abolished 150 years ago. I can't believe this stuff is still going on. Like, no, this has been going on for much longer and it is much deeper than we ever and however uncomfortable I am from the past few weeks of having to confront my own unconscious biases and also the microaggressions I faced through my personal and professional work this is just a like a a fraction like a little like taste a mousse-bouche of the shit that black people have been going through for centuries um and so, I mean, that, that's how I've been kind of like figuring out just the way I, I, I did a lot of work within with low income communities when I was a nonprofit. I was uh, worked for a criminal justice research and policy organization. Um, and now that I'm I'm still in philanthropy and social impact, but I'm on the corporate side, I'm trying to figure out the best way to educate myself and then also make sure that my colleagues are educated because there's a lot of feel good oh like we'll donate a bunch of money like no it goes beyond donating that's like the least you could do that's also really hollow considering all the ways that racism affects the way we work um but i haven't personally been to a protest myself but i know say that you have and i just wanted to know like what was that experience what why did you decide to join a protest the protests that have been going on and then what experience what was that experience like um so for me, like the decision, I, I think the decision wasn't, it wasn't recent. Like I've been, I've been on the streets, like since like back in the, like the Ferguson protests and, you know, just like over the years. So I guess for me, I would answer, I would answer it as why I decided to get out of my quarantine and, you know, like perhaps join this time. I mean, this is so tied to the work that I do, right? Like all right. my clients are black and brown, low income New Yorkers. So like I can't I can't disconnect the work I do and like what my my professional mission is with like with with racial justice, like in the real world, right? But when COVID happened, I was I was very strict about lockdown and quarantine. I hadn't, you know, hadn't left my house. I hadn't really like, um, my partner and I really like, we're taking it very seriously. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, that's what we, you and I have been damned about. Like, oh my God, why aren't people taking this seriously? Cause you, you're in Brooklyn, right? I'm in the Bronx. Oh, you're in the Bronx. I'm in, I'm in, uh, Queens. So I feel like we've both been on the same, like being super strict about our quarantine and then getting really annoyed and angry at people <laughs> posting maskless pictures, hanging out with their friends. Uh, but go on. Yeah. So for me, I mean, yeah, I was sort of like watching that behavior. And I I mean, I was very judgmental of people like going out and socializing and going to iftars or like on Eid, every, everyone's photos was just like mass gatherings. And I'm like, what am I missing? Right? Like what this is like, what am I missing? This is so against the science. But then, you know, the George Floyd video was released and like the next day people took to the streets. And I was like, for me, it was like a no brainer. Cause I, you know, that's just like, I, I was like, I, I'm going. And I think what I realized is, is that for different people with, with the COVID thing, it's been kind of like a risk benefit analysis. And for some people, you know, going to see family is worth the risk. And for some people like going to socialize is worth, worth the risk or going to the post office is worth the risk. And for me, like this was like, it was, I had to be out there and it was so worth the risk. And like my parents, my poor parents and my in-laws were like, what are you doing? You know? And I'm like, look, my sister's an, an ICU doctor. 
My partner is a doctor. His brother is a doctor. Like nobody questioned them when they were like, I got to, you know, I got to show up to work. So I had to make that analogy for them. And um, yeah, that's kind of what the thought process was. And you've been to several now, right? At least these, these protests, these Black Lives Matter protests. This, this in 2020, right? Yeah. Yeah. So all, of, all of that first week, I was almost out every day. And then um, um, the curfew happened. And like, we had, I mean, even then I was out. And, but then sort of like, um, as I think last weekend passed and like um, work picked up, I'm sort of taking breaks as well. So I feel like there's something a little different, right, about what's happening now versus what's hap- what happened with Ferguson and um, other protests. Do you, do you did you feel that with? I mean, you're so entrenched in this work. Do you did you feel that in the protests? Do you feel that with the work that you're doing now, or just what you're seeing now with this resurgence of you kind know, of fed upness? I've had this conversation several times, like with my coworkers and like some of my friends and like, I, I go back and forth. Initially I was like, it's not really different. Cause I, I remember, I remember like 2013 and 14 and like 15, like the whole, whole like last decade. And I remember forgetting yeah. it was like the same exact, like, you know, like the rage and the rigor and then like the law enforcement and, you know, the like the tear gas and the rubber bullet. it's like it was all the same you know the arrests and I was like you know it's sort of like that's what happens like we get we people get bulldozed by the military that is our law enforcement and then you know things will fizzle out but I think over I would say the last week or 10 days I'm beginning to notice I mean so so much has happened right like um, so much yeah. and like the the um appreh- like some of the the cops that were apprehended I mean I want to think that it's different, um, but there's there is a lot that needs to be done. There is a lot that needs to change. Like we're living, especially living in New York City, like you have this false sense of like we're so liberal. There's a false sense of liberty that you know people don't really think about until you're in the street and they're like cops are in your face and they're, they're, there's like there's like weapons in your face and you're you don't understand that our police force is so militarized. They've trained with the IDF and they have like, I mean, you know, this time around, like cops were like emerging out of thin air by the thousands. And I was like, this is so, it, it, it just seemed so bleak, you know, cause there's so many and they're so powerful. Um, it's going to take a lot. I mean, people say defund the police, defund the police. And like, it's, it is, it is an uphill battle. Right. And yeah, I, I want to, I mean, short answer. I want to think, I want to think things are different. Yes. So I know San Francisco just announced that they are going to, um, def- uh, was it San Francisco? I'm pretty sure it was. Minnesota, to- Minnesota is defunding there and they're um, investing in community resources. Right. And they're going to have a specific um, group of individuals who are trained to respond to certain nonviolent crises. Right. So um, homeless uh, and stuff like that say that I'd love to hear. I know. And I hear what you're saying about it being an uphill battle and just so much work to be done. And this is just one step. But how do you think something like this impacts the work that you do and the communities that you serve? Like, do you think it's an effective first step? Do you think there's another step that should be taken? Like in your, in an ideal world to start solving this problem does defunding the police come up as one of like the top three solutions? San Francisco, just to FYI, San Francisco will, the PD will stop responding to non-criminal calls. That's what, yeah, that's what yeah. I thought. Yep. So to solve this problem, the problem being racism? No, I I don't think we're solving that problem. <laughs> <laughs> Not <laughs> during that. this podcast, at least. Yeah. Well, we're talking about police brutality specifically. Yeah, and how how the police brutality integrates with the work that you do. 
right? So like the violent policing of these low-income communities. So I feel like violent policing is like so entrenched in like our society, right? It is, you have to understand that law enforcement, including police force, the DAs, like anything that is law enforcement, their only goal is to uphold the racist white state. That is it, right? And that racist white state has existed for like hundreds of years. And so it is, I mean, what does it really mean to defund police, right? Like people, you have people like up in arms, like, oh my gosh, like no police force. Like how can like humans need order, right? I mean, what does that really mean? That just potentially means taking money away and giving it to other resources, right? And then what, and then, like I said, law enforcement, like other aspects of law enforcement, like all of our prosecutors, our DAs, our courts, our judges, it's such a, like, that's what institutional racism, right? Like when we talk about systemic and institutional racism, like, what does that mean? Like, it's so entrenched in the fabric of this society, right? Keeping Black people down is so entrenched in the fabric of society. And like going back to what Faiza said, you know, when you were talking about how slavery was never really abolished, like I always think of Brian Stevenson's work and his TED Talks and his his book and his um, his documentary. He always says, slave just became criminal, right? This country relies on that. And, and then you monetize that, right? You monetize prisons and you monetize GPS monitoring of people that are released on parole. So it's so, it is, it's just like a cyclical multi-layered issue, right? That, I mean, resolving just like police budgets, it's not going to end it, right? Because it's so systemic. It is so, it's almost every institution of this country. So it's, it is, you have to dismantle all of it, really. Okay. You know? So let's start. Let's start smaller, then, right? I think we can all agree that the only way we're ever going to see this change is by, like you said, say that effectively changing the fabric of this society, right? Confronting, acknowledging, and dealing with our own conscious or subconscious biases working to become better. And that starts with conversations within ourselves, at home, with our friends, with our coworkers, all of those things. And I think we can all also agree that South Asians are some of the most racist mofos out there, right? Not only are we racist against Blacks, we're racist against dark-skinned South Asians, not just South Asians. Muslims in general, very racist. Nobody likes the Egyptians because they're darker than the others. Like this is we joke about it and, you know, ha, 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 I can't believe there's a product called Fair and Lovely, but it's there and it's still there because lots of people buy it. So, like, we can make light of it all we want, but it's very much there. So, with that in mind, we uh, we spoke briefly about kind of like the reactions from your friends and family to the work that you do, the misconceptions that they have about the work you do, the clients you deal with. What are these conversations like that you're having? Like, basically, I need you to teach me how to talk to people in my life about this, because what I can't deal with is hearing one more person tell me about Islamophobia. I'm I'm going to self-combust. If that I kind of fucking false equivalency kills me. It is, is not the same fucking I- thing. Stop it. Right. This is not so about I you. I just fly off the handle into a deep rage, much like what Faiza just showed us. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want to know, like, how are you navigating these conversations? What are you saying to get through the thick skulls of people who still don't get that this isn't about somebody being Black? This is about what society has done to them, to their parents, to their grandparents, to their great-grandparents and will do to their children, their grandchildren, because they are black. Yeah, man. It's it's tough, like you said. It is it is tough, but that is our work, right? I think, I mean, look, anti anti-blackness in South Asian communities is real, right? We, we have to call it what it is. It's racist. 
And we don't want to be racist apologists, right? It is real and it's pitiful. And I've actually really, really thought about it because it's often reduced to, to like turning a blind eye or a lack of awareness or, oh, hey, people are just a product of their circumstances. And like Pakistanis and Indians were colonized. And so, you know, my grandma is like a product of that circumstance. And that's kind of like what you hear, right? Um, but it's the same argument that people in the South make, right? Oh, well, my grandma grew up in the segregated South, and that's why she says colored people. It doesn't make it okay, and she needs to stop. Right. I mean, all of that is true. We are a product of colonialism. Yes, yeah. people are a product of their circumstance, but it would be t- a terrible mistake if we reduced anti-Blackness to just that, right? It would be terrible to say, oh, it's just a lack of awareness. I think, and I've thought about this a lot because like we see it all the time in our families, in our extended, whatever, whatever. You know, in my opinion, I think anti-blackness is is much more. I think it, it's it, it's a conscious lack of awareness, you know, and it is a conscious and severe lack of empathy more than anything, right? It's like you said, Islamophobia. It's like, I always say, is it about justice or just us, right? When you are not able to empathize with the oppression of someone because you or your community doesn't suffer from it, and when that empathy is a choice for you, I think that is the very definition of privilege, right? Yeah, right. And I think part of that has been, or a lot, all of it can be attributed to this model minority myth that I brought up earlier is just like we you're we are having to work within this patriarchal capitalist system built by white people for white people and we've been told you came to this country and you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and you got educated and now look at you you're doing so well you're the you're what the American dream is about and everybody else should you should emulate you and if they don't it's because they're lazy they're they're not as smart and it, it we if we can we can hold ourselves up high you know hold our heads up high because at least we're better than them and you know we've done a good job for our masters our white masters and we're you know we've survived and thrived in this society so why can't others and looking a little too closely or unpacking that reveals all the fucked up shit that we we end up perpetuating and we allow for the oppressor to continue doing because and not just that we benefit from that yeah people our community needs to understand and realize that we benefit from the oppression of black people and that's how this country is set up like you said right we are only doctors lawyers engineers because black people are not right we get jobs because black people are kept out your kids in in suburbia are in certain schools because black kids are not in that school because of redlining and because of like housing discrimination right so that that's the introspection that needs to happen in our communities. Like we need to turn all the fingers inwards. Like if you're a Desi person and you're watching CNN or whatever, whatever mass media, sorry, you can edit that. I, I, whatever mass media that you watch, that's no girl, go off. Whatever. Going up. I, I don't know how to edit. So but if whatever media you're watching, that's for money. And you know, if you're watching videos of looting and you're questioning, you know, why are black people, you know, if you're do if you're one of those people, take that finger and turn it inwards, right? Like what have you done? Because it's not enough. To not be racist, right? We must be anti-racist. And what does that mean? Like, turn, take your finger, turn it inwards. What does that mean? Ask yourself, what have I done with my time, with my money, with my privilege, with my able body, with my light skin body? And what have I done to conquer or fight or stand up against anti-blackness, right? So like, that's the introduction that we have to encourage and actually shove down the throats of like, people we know. And I know, Mac, it's like so difficult, right? It's so uncomfortable. Like, like you said, it's so uncomfortable to have those conversations. But I mean, it would behoove us 
to do so, right? Yeah. I just want to say, I've known Saida for over a decade. I think I met you before I even started law school. And this is my favorite side of Saida by far. <laughs> this might turn into like a three episode podcast, by the way. I think we're going to have to. Yeah, I mean, on our podcast, I love it. I love it. Um, but I think you're absolutely, absolutely right. Like, our perspective on this effectively effectively epitomizes the privilege that we have. And I find the reason I'm asking you like how to have these conversations is because I find myself really struggling to have them in a manner that's consistent. Um, I'm part of an interfaith group up here in the capital district, and I'm like the youngest by at least two decades, right? So um, it's a lot of older, mostly white, uh, some Muslim women. And when the protest started, it was just a few days before our monthly meeting. And so we kind of tabled what we had originally planned to talk about and kind of just had a round table on the protest and um, on the civil unrest that was resulting from not just George Floyd, but, you know, this decade of in your face police brutality that we've all seen. And I was sharing that I was having a hard time reconciling what to do or how to feel about the protests, right? Because on one hand, obviously, um, or sorry, not the protests, the riots, because on one hand, obviously, um, no one condones violence, no one condones property destruction, but as someone who has never feared for her life during a routine traffic stop, as someone who's never wondered that if I'm in trouble, can I rely on the police to come and help and take care of me? Um, You know, as somebody coming from that place of privilege, who the hell am I to say you as a product of generational systemic racism are taking it too far by, you know, breaking the glass of that store. Yes. Does it suck for the store owner? For sure. Do they deserve it? Absolutely not. But again, who am I to tell you that that's the line your rage should not cross. And the reaction I got from the women in this interfaith group, who, by the way, are all lovely. And I'm sorry if any of you are listening. I still want to be part of the group. And I think you're fantastic people. Um, the reaction that I got was, well, you know, maybe you haven't suffered racism or discrimination in your life, but we have. And, you know, we didn't resort to these kinds of things. And it kind of, I was befuddled. I, I like didn't know how to respond to that without saying like, how is it the same thing, right? Somebody ragging on you for your hijab, somebody even calling you a terrorist, which I'm not saying is an okay thing. Like I get that that's also damaging and that's a separate social ill that we need to tackle, but it is not the same thing by any stretch of the definition doesn't even come close. It's not even in the same ballpark as being the same thing. Yeah. I mean, and I, I just, one, I'm all for property destruction. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I don't know. Like, fine, loot that fucking target. They're a multi billion dollar corporation. Pay their workers barely a living wage. They'll be fine. Even the, the CEO of Target even came out and was like, we're fine. We'll rebuild. It's, we don't really care that much about the looting. I think property destruction, what I think people need to ask themselves is why property destruction disturbs them more than the murder of unarmed, innocent black men, right? Like the well, conversation, so I think, sorry, I, and I get what you're saying is like, oh, that, you know, we've, exp- that this group of people or people who have experienced racism didn't resort to this kind of violence. No, no, so, so I, I think I, I should have added this specific context in Albany. The protests and riots that took place in Albany, it was on a stretch, a main stretch of downtown where there's mostly just small businesses, right? So like think downtown city, you're not going to have a target. You're not going to have like the big chains, it's kind of like these smaller boutiques. So um, the context was the destruction of these small businesses, many who are actually minority owned, um, that was taking it too far. So yeah. like, not confirming or denying what you're saying. I'm just 
adding that content. Yeah, I think that's hard. I think also because there are there have been a lot of reports and incidences of looting and that kind of property destruction um, being perpetrated by people outside of the actual protest because they have in large part started off peacefully and then there have been agitators and that's an actual tactic we um trevor noah talked about how you saw that a lot in in apartheid south africa that um white agitators would come in and purposely destroy property and incite violence because they wanted to get violent so that the police could come in and then you know quell it with violence um but I, i think And I know this question was directed at Sayla, but I feel like for me and the way that I look at it is just that this is after centuries um, of acute, not just racism, but violence against black bodies for so long. Um, and that they have done everything that has been asked of them by the oppressor, right? Peaceful protests. You didn't like it when we knelt. You didn't like it when we, you know... Um, tried to change laws or tried to get into politics or created our own organizations and um, affirmative, you know, all of those things. You didn't like it that when we did it within the confines of this system. And so the only choice now is to fuck shit up. Uh, I feel like that's the only way the, I mean, and you're seeing it, right? The, the, the civil rights movement didn't happen by just peace and the whitewashing of Martin Luther King is a whole, we can have a whole nother podcast on that and the vilification of Malcolm X. But I think people need to recognize the history in this country that change only happens is only affected when we work with outside of the system out um, outside of the confines of, or like the, you know, you can't, you can't dismantle the master's house with the master's tools, kind of Audrey Lord sentiment. Like this is the I only way people you. listen. I am with you a hundred million percent. I am high key an anarchist and have been ever since I went to Palestine uh, in 2013. So I'm not, I'm not at all denouncing the protests or the riots. All I'm saying is I find in my social universe, at least, that until everybody is on board, like I feel like Muslims especially are just kind of sitting there tisking at the riots and saying like, you know, basically belittling or discrediting the entire movement because of the property destruction, right? So like focusing just on that without focusing on what drove the people to get to that point and realizing that it's an actual issue that needs change. And because of that discrediting, I feel like there isn't going to be the social or um, cultural change that we need. And I think that's part of that like anti-black sentiment, right? We don't want to be seen, we don't want to be bucketed in with black people. But the reality is if we can uplift the black community, if we can march with them and support their cause, we can only benefit from it as minorities. Like we live in America. You can't have rights for some and not for others and still call it freedom. So if black people are being shot in the streets by murdered by police who are supposed to protect them Mm -hmm. what makes you think that you're not next or that they'll be able to distinguish you as a as as not not right yeah exactly and i think that's what people need to understand but yeah go ahead say though i was i mean that's what i was saying like that you don't have to be next to have that deep empathy right that we need right now and kind of that introspection like why do we where where do our ideas of like property come from right why where do our ideas of like violence means burning or breaking something down right where does that come from where do our ideas of like safety come from right so like that's like the kind of the introspection like i think our community needs like where like what capitalism has done to us and like how like cyclical um you know the thinking can be and so like that's, those are the difficult conversations and like the convictions that we need to be challenging right now, right? A hundred percent. And I feel like that's been the hardest part of the past few weeks for me coming to terms with my own subconscious ideas 
of like, you know, okay, you're home shopping. What's the first thing you look at? Property values. What determines property value? Hmm. Right. Or like school districts, what determines how good, obviously every person wants their kid to go to a great school. What does that mean when you look at like the diversity profile of a school? So that's, I hear you hundred percent. That's been a really, really tough thing to reckon with um, for myself over the past few weeks. Yeah. And we have to, but also, like, it's even more depressing to think that that's the hardest thing for me, like realizing my failures as a human versus again, wondering if I get pulled over for having my tail light out and getting shot in broad daylight. Exactly. The privilege is inescapable. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 and we have to do that within ourselves. We, we have to do it with our families, our friends, our community, right? It's very uncomfortable. It is, it is shattering and the conversations are not easy. I mean, it could be as simple as like, you know, telling, you know, saying something to your mom or your mother-in-law or whoever, but even that can be really difficult at times, right? Cause like, there's like subtle tones of anti-blackness, like within, within our communities. And like, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable, but I would say call people out and, 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 and talk with them and like engage and ask and question. So you mentioned calling people out and you've done that on your, like I follow you on Instagram and I know you've called people out for their like performative activism. Have you, what's, has there been any response to that? Has there been any backlash? Have people responded to that in any way? Yeah. I mean, so like most of the response was really good. Like a lot of people were, were like, wow, this is so, this is so great. Thank you for saying this. Can I share it? Um, I did get a little bit of backlash, right? Like, so basically I had posted, I guess, just a bit of a background was that I I was seeing a lot of like, a lot of social media activity where people were like influencers or not even influencers, just like regular Instagram user or Facebook user. And just like posting like their face or like their baby or their house or like a selfie and then like a BLM caption or like being on the sideline of a protest or like videotaping it or in a way that like, you know, it was like themselves in the forefront and then the protest is a backdrop for their post. And so I called it out. Right. And I, I was like, you're, you're not black. You're being an ambulance chaser. Um, you're showing up in a very conditional way that is for your content, for your clout. Like why very convenient way. What is your face? have to do with BLM? Like, why are you posting a selfie? And then like captions, like, I feel this and that, like, nobody cares what you feel like. You're not a black person, right? Like, I don't want to, we don't want to hear your voice, right? And the movement then becomes a backdrop for your clout and your content, right? Which is exactly what performative activism is. So like, it's, it's, it was really infuriating. And I called it out. It's infuriating because people, the fact that people can post a selfie or post a picture of themselves in their home is a reflection of privilege, right? Like you're not putting your body on the line. And it's all around just problematic. So I called it out. And like, a lot of people were like, this is great. Thank you. And then they shared it. And then someone was like, you know, you don't have to criticize everything. Someone close to me, they felt like they, they could say it to me because they're, they're very close to me. And so they're like, just watching out for you. Like, you sound really harsh, you know, and it's, you, it's, people are trying to show up in, in whatever way they think they can. And we got into a back and forth. And I said, first of all, like your tone policing me, like that's gaslighting, right? Like, you're telling me I'm harsh or angry. <laughs> like, you know, people right now are, are, are falling apart and feeling whatever. Like everyone's on a different wavelength of emotion and telling POCs like that they sound harsh or angry is a form of gaslighting. It's problematic. It's tone policing, all of that. Right. So we got into a back and forth. And then like the next, like two days later, that person actually came around and was like, I get what you were saying. Cause I'm seeing all of this now. Like I'm seeing so much of it and I get it. And you're right. I was like, tone policing you. So like, that was a really good um, outcome, I think, because we engaged in a discussion and like the person could like, there was obviously we all have blind spots, right? And, and so they came around in a couple of days. But um, yeah, but most for the most part, I think, I mean, 
it's been, it's been positive and I'm gonna, I mean, I don't know if, if, if something like a, if something like a civil rights moment in history is happening on the street and I'm, I'm seeing your face or like your baby's face, like you best believe I'm going to call you out like and I didn't do it like personally but I I posted this long thing on performative activism and I think I think we have to sort of do our part because that's also part of our like the anti-blackness in our community right say that you lost friends because of a your work or b just the challenges over the past couple years and people who may not have been as receptive to the message I'm actually very okay. interested in this question because Sayed and I went to Rutgers together. Yeah. We knew each other like kind of like There's a lot of shitty days at Rutgers. <laughs> like you know, we, we like we didn't run in the same circles, but we knew of each other. We we're like friendly, um, and I know that you were pretty involved in like the South Asian community. And so I wonder how your work and your and the nature of your work and the fact that you are very outspoken. How how has that affected your relationships and your right. friendships? Not everybody can handle like an honest take. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I wouldn't say like I've act like actually lost friends. I mean, maybe like people fizzle out, right? Like out of your lives. And I'm also like, like I was saying to you, Faisal, earlier. Like I'm like actually people think I'm an extrovert, but I'm actually an introvert with like extrovert tendencies. So like I really like if I lose friends, like I would if it especially if it was over this, I wouldn't mind. Either way, I would say like since college, obviously, it's been people grow and you change. And I mean, what I do is is exhausting and burnout is real. So like I like I love, you know, my home and my family. And so like, you know, my hobbies. So I think, um, yes, things have definitely changed since college. I would say perhaps maybe people don't agree with with things that I'm saying are my outlook and but nobody has really come out and said that that's why perhaps we're not friends anymore but I don't know I'm not sure if I've lost friends because of what I do yeah, well, I guess if we get any hoot messages on this podcast I guess we'll know <laughs> I mean, so let's be real super passive aggressive so no one's saying anything yeah because no one has the balls to maybe or, or I don't know. I don't. I just it's uh, whatever I'm doing or, or or saying is falling on deaf ears. Or yeah, there's also oh, that. <laughs> um, so let's bring it home. I would love to. So we usually end the podcast on like, what's the kind of lesson learned? Um, what's what's the kind of good moral of this lesson? What have you taken away from this whole experience? So what's the thing that you want to hold on to after? I mean, hopefully this doesn't go away what what is the thing that you have learned from both quarantine and this new wave of protests um and what do you hope to change or continue to fight for in your in your life that's a lot um i don't know i feel like we're always learning right quarantine's definitely taught me a bunch but i actually went through i went through a health issue last year and i was home for three months so i feel like i going into quarantine i was I was ready. Like, so I, I feel like quarantine has been okay um, in terms of an adjustment, uh, you know, lens, I would say. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm learning. We're all learning. We're all growing. Um, I would say in the last two weeks, I've learned a lot about, you know, some of the things we touched on, just uh, the performative allyship and genuine allyship. And I'm learning how to manage just everything. It's a lot right now, right? Managing how to work, how to work from home, how to stay engaged, how to be an activist, how to like stay alive these days, right? <laughs> um, and and to do that in an era when so much is being shared and it's information overload and it's social media and just like how to be authentic and and also how, how to take care of yourself, right? It's, um, we talked about burnout a, a little bit and it's definitely very real. Um, secondhand trauma is real, right? And how to manage that and to manage trauma that's coming in from like a million different directions, but also 
balancing that with the guilt. Cause like, I'm not, I don't have a black body. I'm not a black person and I'm not, you know, like I can't even imagine what it's like. And that really festers a lot of guilt. And, um, it's, you know, sort of managing all of that is, is definitely a work in progress and I'm still learning and growing as we all are. Right. Yeah. Agreed on all fronts. Mahek, what's been your takeaway? Um, we'll first say that I want to say thank you for doing this episode with us. And I really think we could do probably five more with you and still not run out of things to talk about on this topic. Um, but really, really appreciate your insight and the work that you do and the schooling that you offer that maybe the others of us can't offer. Um, something you said that I really, really love from today's episode is the complete lack of empathy that's becoming apparent. And like you said, this guilt of not being able to understand the experience because of the privilege that we all live with. Um, but what I'm coming to realize over these past few weeks of my own kind of soul searching is I don't need to understand the experience, right? I don't need to be able to relate to it to inspire me or force me to do better, right? It, it doesn't, I, I don't know how to say it in a smart way because my brain isn't working, but I, I don't like, I don't need to get it to know that it's 100% unequivocally wrong and has to change. And I think that's something I need to keep in the forefront. Like it just comes down to basic humanity, basic human decency, basic empathy. This is another living person. Like people are up in arms over somebody running over a squirrel on the highway, right? But suddenly black dudes are being shot in broad daylight for showing zero aggression and people are tripping up over some loopholes, some like bureaucratic technical nonsense. Um, so that's, that's my takeaway that I, I, we, all of us have to remember that baseline, this is just about the value of a human life, the right of every person to live a life of dignity and opportunity. Um, and we don't have to share that experience to try to uplift them and support them in that. This is supposed to be a really uplifting segment of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know I think it's, I, it, it's been hard to do that even before the protests. I think we've been struggling with this part of the, this portion of the podcast with the uh, our, our quarantine episodes um, in general, just because it is kind of, it does feel a little like apocalyptic and uh, catastrophic, but I've, um, I think one of the things that I'm kind of grateful for uh, in the midst of all of this, uh, the last few weeks is um, my time at Rutgers, specifically Douglas College, because I was a women and gender studies minor. And it equipped me to have conversations with people, um, have those kinds of um contentious conversations when it comes to race and gender in a way that I'm seeing a lot of my friends struggle with. So I've had conversations with a couple of my friends who were like, how do I talk to this person? And what do I say? And my, my baseline has always been, is this person is first of all, what, where, what is the forum? Is it, is this happening on social media? Cause more, more often than not, you're just already entrenched in your view views and you're not looking to educate yourself or enlighten yourself. Uh, if it's on social media, don't do it right or take it offline if it's in person is this is this person trying to are, do they just want access to resources are they looking for your actual advice or opinion or are they looking to bait you into like a bullshit conversation where they can espouse their terrible views right and like take oh what about like, play devil's advocate i fucking hate devil's advocate but because that is you just using this socially acceptable term to espouse your stupid ass views and 
and then be able to like wash your hands of it because you were just playing devil's advocate. That's um, one thing. And I think it also has reignited this fire in me to be more vocal, to be more bold in calling out um, racism and sexism and just microaggressions not only that I encounter, but I see in my everyday life and being more aggressive about saying, no, this is wrong. Um, because I look back at my career and I, I've done a lot of this work. Um, I worked in low-income communities. I worked in criminal justice research and policy. I did my master's thesis on the school to, uh, prison pipeline. Like I, I know these things and it's a good reminder of the fact that I do know these things. I'm aware of these things. And now I need to take that knowledge and put it into action in very real ways. And I can do that. Um, and share the knowledge with your networks because yeah. you have a lot of very specific knowledge that the common person uh, does not. Yeah. And, and so I'm taking that more seriously in my actual professional work. Now we've been trying to, um, been, I'm on this task force now on, on, figuring out like long-term impact within the company because we recognize that there are a lot of issues within the company that we need to address. Uh, And so I'm taking that very seriously and making sure that the people I surround myself with are people who are interested in learning more and um, actioning after that. And not just like, oh, I'm listening. It's not enough to listen. You need to learn. You're, most people are fully functioning adults and you have the internet. You can learn and then you need to take action. This is, we're past the, the point of um, donating and virtue signaling. We need to make effective change and call to actions. Yeah. Like I said, it's just not enough to be not racist. Like we must be anti-racist. We must raise anti-racist children, right? That even look like, and, you know, just tackle all of this with our our family and our friends. Yeah. And there are lots of resources out out. there have been, but now they're like curate, you know, just Google a curated list of um, books and articles about black liberation and the history of black people in America. And, uh, there are lots of good reading lists out there. There are lots of great podcasts that I've been listening to. You can find that information. And if you don't want to do that, you can DM me at on Instagram at the cold shoulder cat or on Twitter at cold shoulder cat. And that's all I have. Um, I really like uh, what you said about how to talk to people, Faiza, because we all are learning that, right? And all of this could be so heavy and emotional and triggering. And it's so yeah. hard to have the conversations. Like no one's perfect at it, right? Like even after like years of therapy, like and like years of like, you know. Yeah. Like- and especially now I feel like it's so, you have to expend your energy in ways that serve you, right? Like there is no point in having a conversation with someone who is not willing to actually come to the table open and willing because and you're like, just going to train yourself conversation with like, you know, like in a lot of like the, the racial justice trainings, like we always learn about how it's not, it's not POC's job to teach white mm-hmm. people yeah. their opinion, yeah. right? Like it's not, and then also then deal with coddling their feelings when white fragility pops off. Right. So um, like, yeah, some conversations I don't think are worth having. No, absolutely. And I think that's what people need to realize. Like now there are some conversations that you should absolutely just walk away from because it's not worth it. It's not worth, worth getting into. But that's what I mean. Even with conversations within your social circle, if both parties can agree to just come to the table with baseline empathy, I think it completely changes the tone and the outcome of the conversation, right? Because then you're not just there to feed your ego and prove your point. You're actually there to be better and do better. And then don't give people a pass. Like if it's like your mom or your mother-in-law, like, no, they're not getting a pass. Like, you know, yeah. it's, uh, yeah. it's tiring. What's and wrong is wrong. Yeah. I feel like I've trained my mom really well because she was on point with all of her thoughts. Around well, this. She's really rad. Like she's like, bring it all down. Like she, yeah. you know, she's like, that's what she's been saying. But, um, there are people, you know, that you, you deal with that it's going to come up. It keeps coming up, right? Yeah. Yeah, it will. And this is, a, that's the thing. This is not, there's no destination here. This is going to be, this is a lifelong thing you need to commit to. If you were committed to being anti-racist, 
uh, you need to commit right. to making the ally a, you keep saying yeah. you are, then be that ally. Right. Allyship is, um, it's not, passive. It? It's, it's not an identity. It's a practice. That's, mm-hmm. I think that's what people need to take it's away from It's also not this. passive. And I think that's something that I've really grappled with, with myself that, like you said, Faiza, it's not enough to donate. It's not enough to say I'm not racist. It's not enough. None of this is enough because it, it's, it hasn't made anything better. And amplify Black voices. Like I, Ujoma Oluo, um, she like tweeted about this and she talks about, you know, like how allies right now need to be giving responses that are tangible and real and elevate Black voices, not making, she says, don't make us swim through your tears while we fight. So I feel like that's so profound. So fuck your Black squares. (laughs) just gonna say it it's my addendum to that but Mehek um your socials uh Mehek Jamil on the gram and Nisi on Twitter and say that if you want to plug your harsh views (laughs) all my stuff is pretty private but sure I'm uh it's Seva Abbas it's my full name and then five four at um, on Instagram, I guess. And that's probably all I'm willing to share. <laughs> yeah, no, that's totally fine. I think, um, I, I think this, it'll be great to revisit this conversation because this is going to continue and evolve. And so I'd love to have you back and like have a, I know this is pretty kind of general. We hit a lot of, of really important points, but I think as this movement takes, um, as takes, it plays out, as it plays out and continues, I think it'd be great to have you back on like, of course. you know, I would what's love going to. on out there. Thank you for having me. This Thank you awesome. for joining us. the work us. you do. Continued success to you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys. Um, so good chatting with you. All right. Thanks. Bye guys. Bye-bye.